How marvelous you are. Father, that is our cry, and we praise you that you are a great God, yet you are close to us in the Lord Jesus Christ through whom you speak in your word. And our prayer today is that we might discover marvelous things in your word and have our hearts renewed and encouraged that this coming week we might be those who live for the Lord Jesus and give our lives once again to his glory. We ask it for his name's sake and in his name. Amen. So please do turn back in your Bibles then to Psalm 19 as we continue our songs for the summer this week. In a recent study sponsored by Lifeway Research, some disturbing and surprising truths were uncovered, which is that only 33%, roughly a third of Americans who attend a Protestant church, read their Bibles every day. If that's reflected across our congregation, it means that two-thirds of us here don't open the Scriptures in our weeks. Assuming that there are 168 weeks sorry, 168 hours in the week, and then that there is a sermon perhaps for half an hour or a service for an hour, what that means is that just one hour out of 168, just one hour for the word of Jesus Christ. Churches then that are reformed or theologically conservative, biblically literate, have shut their Bibles, and we're getting on with our weeks without serious reference to the Word of God. I guess if two-thirds of us have shut our Bibles, we know that's wrong. We know our priority ought to be Scripture. We know that there is something of guilt about it. So one approach for the preacher might be to attack it through the lens of guilt, Read your Bible more often, and we can point the finger, and how wrong it is not to. But guilt is never the right motivator, because as God's people, we are under the reign of grace. Jesus has died for us, we are forgiven at the cross, and guilt is never the right motivation as the New Testament people of God, his precious children. So what is What will motivate us to be people who open the Bible, who love to do that, who engage with the gospel each day and allow the word of God to penetrate our lives like sugar dissolving in the coffee? What will be the motivation? And this morning we're going to see from Psalm 19, it is to understand the nature of Scripture and of the extraordinary privilege we have in being given Scripture by a God who cares for us and who loves us. This morning, the aim is to marvel afresh at the joy of Scripture and the privilege of being given the gospel by a God who loves us. Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis calls it the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world because this is a song all about God's revelation of himself and a revelation that comes in two different books. First through the book of creation, and then through the book of the Bible. 
And we're going to look at the psalm under those two different headings because it splits up that way. First, if you like, the book of creation, as we discover a partial revelation of God through the skies. The psalm opens with a strident and emphatic note. The key is forte, much like the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse are declaring the work of his hands. God is the creator. And the word glory here carries in the original Hebrew a sense of the heaviness, the importance, and the weightiness of the character of God. The opposite is a lightweight. But God isn't a lightweight. He is the heavyweight God of substantive glory. And the psalmist is saying, as you look up to the sky, you see something of the extraordinary, heavy, weighty, powerful glory of God. In verse 1 and following, the sky then is, is pictured like a preacher, declaring the universe is like a pulpit. And there are three things to notice about this sermon. First, when it's being preached. Second, how it's being preached. And then third, where it's being preached. So when is this sermon being preached from the skies? And the answer is continually, verse two, day to day, night to night. There is nothing in church worse than a preacher that goes on and on and on and never knows when to stop. But the universe is like a preacher that cannot stop. 24-7, this sermon is going on all nights and all day. Second, how is it being preached? There's nothing worse than a preacher who's not clear. But this sermon couldn't be clearer. It isn't patchy or abundant, but like the radio signal when you go through a mountain range, when you lose it. This proclamation from the universe is abundant. Speech is being poured forth, verse 2. And the sense is continuous. The message is being declared. Verse four, heard without interruption. The proclamation is abundant, like a fire hydrant. And where? Verse three, universally. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Verse four, their voice goes through all the earth. Their utterance to the ends of the earth. Billy Graham was an extraordinary evangelist, probably the most extraordinary evangelist the world has ever seen. He conducted 417 crusades in 185 countries across six continents. He reached, we think, at least a fifth of the world's population. But that's nothing compared to this sermon from the universe. The whole world has heard the sermon. Everybody in the world has seen something of the glory of God as the universe, the sky, has proclaimed the glory of God. Language and culture is not a barrier, neither is distance. This sermon has reached the farthest most points in the world. A woman in New Guinea might look up, she sees the Southern Cross. A, a man in Finland looks up, he sees the Big Dipper. But how is it that the universe declares the glory of God so clearly? 
And in verse five, what the psalmist does is to show us how. It's all to do with the son. Verse five is what John Stott calls a particular example of the universal witness. And it's a great example because the sun takes center stage in our skies. In them, he's placed a tent for the sun. It rises from the end of the heavens and its circuit is to the other. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The tent here is like a a track, if you like, a circuit. So the sun rises, and we know the sun doesn't rise, but the earth goes down. But the sun rises, and then it does its circuit. So you see sunrise in the east, and then you see sunset in the west. And then on the other side of the world, it's repeated as the sun just goes round, as the earth goes round the sun. You see the sun wherever you are. And the psalmist uses too many illustrations of this extraordinary witness of the sun. What's it like, the sun, when you see it? Well, like a groom at a wedding, and then like an Olympic athlete running its course. Like a groom at a wedding, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. The thing is, at a wedding, you can't miss the bride or the groom. But in ancient Jewish weddings, it was the groom who was the center stage, not the bride. But in any wedding, you cannot miss the groom. He's in every photograph. He's there at the front of church. He's there at the reception. He's then driving off with his bride at the car. If you said, I didn't see the groom in the wedding, people would say, what's wrong with you? Equally, the strong man running his course This is the strong man at the Olympic 100-meter dash. You can't miss Hussein Bolt. You can't miss Christian Coleman. Every, Every camera is on him in the race. And then after the race, he's standing on the podium getting the gold medal. He's on every newspaper and website. The point is, you cannot miss the sun. Wherever we are in the world, you'll see its sights and feel its effects, all 120,000 terawatts of it. The point is, wherever you are in the world, you can't miss the glory of God. As the sun rises, you see the display of his power in the heavens. The hymn writer gets it right, creation sings the Father's song. He calls the sun to wake the dawn and run the course of day till evening falls in crimson ray. Maybe David is, I don't know, waking up in the morning and seeing the sun rise, or or is he seeing the sun set, or, or is he going out at night and seeing the stars like last week in Psalm 8? Is he looking at a sunset somewhere over the Atlantic? In New Jersey, as he sees the bright orange becoming the red, then the purple and the pink as it sinks down into the waters. And is his heart pounding within him as he, as he thinks to himself of the glorious majesty of the great God who made the universe? But the point is, you cannot be an atheist with integrity. Because in Acts 14, verse 7, Paul declares that God has not left himself without witness. Every day, wherever you are in the world, you will see evidence of God's creation from the skies. 
In Romans 1 verse 19, Paul can even go as far as to say this to the atheist world. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that men have made. God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. The invisible God has been clearly seen. We thought about this last week. If you go to the Tate Modern or you go to the Museum of Modern Art in New York and you see the great picture, there's no excuse for not knowing who the artist is because the signature, Manet or or Monet, is down at the bottom. But how does humanity respond? And the answer of the New Testament is that we engage in a corporate cover-up. We suppress the truth we know about God. We fail to acknowledge our great creator. We fail to marvel at him and bow our knees to him in reverence, obedience, and awe as we take center stage and push him out into the wings of the universe. No, no, the book of creation is open, but are we listening? Because the skies are proclaiming the glory of God. They reveal in parts who God is. But then something really strange happens in our psalm. The psalmist switches gear and it almost jars Suddenly, we move from God's self-revelation in his world to God's self-revelation in his word. And we move, if you like, from the skies, verses 1 to 6, to the, to the scriptures, verse 7 to 14. And it's such a grinding of the gears that many commentators think this is actually two separate psalms that have been cutted and pasted and sort of glued together. But the psalmist knows exactly what he's doing. As now we move from general revelation of God in creation to special revelation of God in his word. And the point is that though the creation may reveal all sorts of truths about God and his glory, it does not and cannot reveal enough to save us. Indeed, the creation can only reveal enough to condemn us. So from the general revelation of God in the skies now to the specific or special revelation of God in the scriptures to save us. There's an incredible moment um, in the coronation according to the Book of Common Prayer. It last happened in 1953 when the queen became queen of her territories. She's anointed with oil. She is declared to be queen. And then, standing next to the Archbishop of Canterbury, the moderator of the Church of Scotland, goes to the chancel and picks up a Bible. He then walks over to the newly crowned sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth, and presents her with the scriptures. And he says these extraordinary words. Our gracious queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole of life and government of Christian princes. We present you with this book, 
the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. There's a difference between part one and part two of our psalm, if you look carefully. Notice that from verse seven, the lines change and get longer. They become more poetic. And notice in verse one to six that God is mentioned only once. Uh, L, the general title for God. But in verse seven to 11, it's not God, but the Lord mentioned at least seven times. The point is that the creation can tell you that God, the creator, is there. But we come to know Yahweh, the, the covenant Lord, through and only through his word, the scriptures. We move from general revelation to specific revelation in redemption. And the psalmist marvels at the power of God's word to save us. As he gives six titles and then six descriptive phrases and then six accompanying effects. My view is that verse, uh, the first verse there, verse seven, is the heading, if you like, of which the rest is the exposition. But the law of the Lord is perfect. Law here doesn't mean legislation from Capitol Hill. The word is Torah. The Torah were the first five books of the Bible, but the word Torah really meant the fatherly instruction of God to his children people. This word from God, the Torah, it is perfect. Perfect because it is blameless, complete, without error. It is sufficient. It is able to revive your soul. And I'll be speaking to some people here this morning who know that they are wilting like a plant spiritually. You feel like death warmed up. Maybe you're thinking, I don't actually think I should even be here this morning. Maybe you are heading into sin, having an affair, or you're engaging in activity you know to be wrong, and you don't know how to get back to God or find his grace. Here's the promise. The law of the Lord is perfect, and it will. It will revive your soul. In verse seven to nine, it's as if the psalmist is picking up a diamond and looking at each of the facets of the diamond from its different angles, scripture from all of its different angles. The testimony of scripture, verse seven, carrying the sense of, of a map or direction. This, this word will, it will lead you home to glory and you'll never get lost if you follow it. The precepts, verse eight, carry the sense here of precision and authority, the authority with which God speaks. Verse nine, the fear of the Lord. It's taken from Exodus 20, verse 20, where the fear of the Lord will be with you to keep you from sinning. As we, as we engage with God's word, there's a right fear of God that keeps us from sin. Verse nine, rules his, his really ordinances or verdicts, his judgments. But either way you cut it, this, this word is perfect. 
In his commentary on the Psalms, the commentator Plummer puts it like this, the doctrines show us what we must believe, the precepts what we must do, the warnings what we must shun, the promises what we must hope for, but as we turn to God's words, we find all these things. And this word is not just informative in my head, but transformative in my heart. The King James Bible puts revive here as convert. So the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. It will bring a saving change and then a sanctification of my heart, which is what First Peter talks about as we're born again through the imperishable word of God, or as the apostle James put it, that he chose to give us life through the word. And there is a progression here the law of God, the gospel will revive us. And then having revived us, it will make us wise, the greatest gift in life. And in that wisdom, we'll find joy in life. These are all the things we long for, aren't they? Life, joy, wisdom. If only I could have life, joy, and wisdom, well then, we would get life right. But we are evangelicals. And that word evangelical comes from the word evangel, which is the Greek word for word or message. We are evangelicals precisely because we are people of the word, of the, of the book. Our approach then is sola scriptura, by scripture alone. But we're not only evangelical, but we are, we are reformed evangelicals. Because in 1517, what Luther rediscovered was that the church had erred from the Word of God and therefore needed to be brought back to the Word of God. And in every generation, in every culture, the church errs from the Word, and therefore the great challenge is to always bring the church in general and a church in particular back to the Word of God, semper reformanda, always reforming ourselves to be revived by the words of Jesus Christ. I think the greatest Englishman ever to have lived was William Tyndale. He was born in Gloucester in a humble village in 1494. He went to Oxford University at the age of 12. He studied for nine years and was ordained. His intellectual gifts were extraordinary, and he could have gone all the way up to become Archbishop of Canterbury. But he just had one great aim, one great vision and compulsion, and it was to translate the scriptures from Latin into English so that ordinary people, the plows boy in the field, could read the scripture and find life and joy in salvation through the word of Christ. It was a dangerous mission. He translated the Bible. He was hunted down by Henry VIII and by the Archbishop of Canterbury. He fled to the continent to find sanctuary there, but was found out and was betrayed, eventually being arrested, imprisoned, and hung, drawn, and quartered. But in his preface 
he writes this. Let it not make thee despair, nor discourage thee, O reader, that it is forbidden thee in pain of life and goods, and that it is a breaking of the king's peace or treason to his highness to read the word of thy soul's health. For if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us, be they bishops, cardinals, or popes? He was so convinced that this word was the word of life and hope, so convinced that in an act of treason, he translated the scriptures and then got the scriptures to England in English. And the reason we have the Bible today in English was precisely because he was the first ever translator to do it. He was so convinced of the worth of scripture that he died to translate it. And the psalmist is saying the same thing. The most extraordinary privilege is to have this book, to have this Bible on your lap or in your smartphone this morning is the most extraordinary privilege on planet Earth. And the psalmist tells us that, as in verse 10, he gives us too many pictures of the privilege. He, he picks the two most precious things in the world. And I want to challenge you as I ask you whether you believe this. Scripture is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Second, sweeter than honey, than the drippings of the honeycomb. He picks, if you like, the most valuable thing in the world, much fine gold. And then he picks the most extraordinary experience in the ancient world, honey from the honeycomb, the most extraordinary wealth and the most extraordinary privilege from luxury living, the honeycomb. And the psalmist is saying that the Bible, possessing the gospel, knowing God in the scriptures, is a greater privilege than all the money the world can afford or, or the most amazing experience the world could give you. Do you believe that? That we are more privileged than a Bill Gates, a Jeff Bezos, or an Elon Musk? They may have all of that wealth, but this is the greatest privilege. Why? And the answer comes in verse 11, because through this word, your servant is warned, and in keeping this word, there is great reward. This book will warn you of the seriousness of sin, of the coming judgments of God, of the fact that all of us one day will stand before Jesus Christ as our Lord and King and Judge. This book will declare to us in love the eternal realities of heaven and of eternal punishment in hell. It warns us. It warns us of drifting theologically, of, of drifting away morally. It warns us and it promises us great rewards for if we live in line with Jesus, his saving rule and gracious salvation, there is going to be extraordinary reward, the crowning at the end of the age in his new creation forever. So Calvin says, the sense is that we do not esteem God's word as it deserves 
if we prefer it, if we prefer to it the riches of the world. So what would you rather? A check for $100 million or scripture? If I was to offer you this morning, you've got a choice. I can give you the scriptures or $100 million, but it's one or the other. What would you pick? But actually, I'm not honest enough to answer that question. Here's the real question. If you're a parent, what do you want for your kids? Because what you want for your kids shows me your heart. What do I want for my kids? Well, that they do really, really well at school, go to an Ivy League college, that they graduate with honors, that they come out with a master's, that they go and work for the corporation, that they make a lot of money, live in a big house with a pool, afford holidays to Bermuda, have the country house up in the mountains as well, and have all of the money and all of the pension that they need forever. That's what I want for my kids. Well, those things aren't necessarily bad, but one or the other, I want the gospel for my kids. Because with the gospel, they know how to live now and die safe in the arms of the God who loves them. In the Book of Common Prayer, you'll find this extraordinary prayer that is to be said in every church in England on the second Sunday in Advents. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. But the psalm doesn't end there. If you like, we move from the skies to the scriptures, now and last to the servants. Because something weird is happening in the life of David. He's looked at the skies and he's seen something of the glory of God. He's read the scriptures, but actually, he's been undone. Look how he ends the prayer. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me that I may be blameless and acquitted in the great assembly of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. That word acceptable is a temple word. I want to be acceptable to you, O God, but I know I'm not. And this Psalm, Psalm 19, follows Psalm 18. And the key to Psalm 19 is to realize who's actually singing it. Not an ordinary believer, but God's anointed King David's. In Psalm 18, the great demand is that the king must be blameless. Now the king is reading God's law and he knows he's not blameless. He's guilty of sin with Bathsheba. He's killed Uriah. There's been a cover-up and a royal scandal. The king that has to be perfect, Psalm 18, is not perfect and the law of God shows it in Psalm 19. This is a king who has been undone by the word of God, the law, 
And therefore, Psalm 19 drives us forward in the search for a perfect king who can perfectly keep the law of God for the people of God. Is it Solomon? No. Is it any other king? No. Until a king comes with perfection as the father announces, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus is the king of Psalm 19 who perfectly keeps the law and in keeping the law through his perfect life and taking the penalty through his death, gives us his righteousness that we might, empowered by his spirit, then become a people who can obey God's word as he transforms us in our lives. A general revelation in the skies, a partial revelation of God in the skies, a a perfect revelation of God in the scriptures. Both the skies and the scriptures lead us to Christ, his saving death, triumphant resurrection, the giving of his spirits. And so, as I finish, are you discouraged, deflated? Are the other spiritual batteries on low? Are you downcast? about how your life has turned out? Is there sadness and pain? Are you broken and weary? The promise is that this word will revive your soul because this is the word of the gospel that will bring us to the Jesus who loves you, who will restore you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great good news of Jesus, of whom your word speaks. And we thank you that you have indeed caused all scripture to be written for our learning. Grant then that we may read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word, that by patience and comfort we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.